Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, February 1st, 2010. Super Bowl week. Must confess, this is the uh, first time I can remember living in a city uh, where the local home team is in the Super Bowl. And I gotta tell you, the uh, fans in Indianapolis, they're nuts. They're absolutely nuts here. Crazy. I've never quite seen anything like it. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is just no shortage of all kinds of crazy things. And sadly enough, the crazy things being said about God are being said in churches, as a result of it, there's a whole lot of confusion as to what Christianity is about, who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, and apparently what he's for. I mean, you know, so if you believed a lot of the uh, seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches, you'd have to conclude that Jesus is kind of like your personal trainer or coach or maybe even personal assistant. His job is to make your life better. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's not it at all. Un unbelievable. So anyway, what do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? We take what people say. We we listen to it. We compare it to what God's word says to see if what people are telling you is the truth. This is the job of a Berean, if you would. And the Bereans are mentioned in the book of Acts. And they were said to have a more, they were to be of a more, more noble character than the Thessalonians. Because uh, when the apostle Paul breezed into town, and preached the gospel to them, they didn't say, oh, that's great. They said, hey, wait a second, let's check to make sure what this guy's saying actually uh, works with Scripture. And so they actually took the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached and took the only word of God that they knew that they had, the only authoritative word of God that they had at the time that they knew of, which was uh, the Old Testament, uh, at this point translated into Greek, uh, known as the Septuagint, and uh, what they did is they compared what the Apostle Paul said to the Word of God that they had from the Old Testament, and they said, "Yep, that's this guy's teaching us what the what the Bible teaches about who the Messiah is and what he would do." And uh, I like to think, even though the text itself doesn't say so, this is speculation on my part, that uh, one of uh, the Apostle Paul's favorite passages to take people to would be the uh, Book of Isaiah. 
chapter 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Yeah, that that, that entire chapter there of the suffering servant and uh, it, it, the great penal substitutionary atonement uh, passage from Scripture. I think that that's uh, some good stuff. Okay, today, I'm looking at today's program, of course, I think I've got enough here for three programs, but I'm not going to try to compress it all into, into one program. I just don't think that's possible. But uh, being as that as this is a Super Bowl week, okay, and it's not, it's not that I'm trying to rub it in that I happen to be, you know, fortunate enough to be living in the same town uh, where the uh, where one of the teams is in the Super Bowl, that would be uh, Indianapolis, and uh, our the, our team is the Indianapolis Colts, and they are playing the St. Louis Saints in the in the Super Bowl. But that's that's kind of all. Well, I'm sorry, but the Super Bowl itself. That's kind of the sideshow. But what's the big show? Well, <laughs> mega churches and the ability to watch the big show or the big game on the big old jumbotrons at like Willow Creek and, 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 and <laughs> name the mega church, you know, New Spring or, uh, Saddle Crack, you know, any of those, uh, any of those, uh, you know, big churches. I mean, this is the week. To, uh, you know, to be into that. And so as a result, uh, we have a, a public service announcement that we would, uh, like to offer, uh, those of you who attend mega churches to make sure that you do not run afoul of the, uh, well, uh, of the NFL's requirements as it pertains to displaying the big game at your church. So this is our public service announcement to all of you out there. That's right. Do you attend a mega church? Do you have the equivalent of Dodger Vision? I mean, some ginormously outrageous, multi-million dollar, high-definition, uh, uh, well, you know, system that you can watch the big game in super surround sound, THX, digital, uh, 1080p. Uh, well... If you do, then uh, we got to keep you got to keep in mind that there's certain rules that you have to abide by. And so, here's our public service announcement for those of you who want to have a big game party at your megachurch. February seventh, twenty ten, it will be Football Sunday in America, and many churches are gearing up for their annual Super Bowl watch parties. Many in the church world know that previously the NFL has taken a hard stance against showing the big game outside of a traditional family living room environment. In the past. The NFL went as far as to send legal demand letters to churches threatening them to prosecute for violation of copyright laws if the watch parties were not canceled. However, members of Congress threatened to change copyright laws, and as a result... <laughs> okay, so... It took an act of Congress. I mean, in years past, you couldn't be able to do... You couldn't do this. You couldn't watch the big game at your uh, mega church. But thanks to Congress stepping in, now you can. The NFL issued a statement adopting new guidelines that will allow church-sponsored events to show the Super Bowl. So how can you have a Super Bowl watch party without getting into trouble? Churches, ministries, and other nonprofit organizations are free to show the game on large screens in their public facilities without fear of violating copyright laws so long as the church abides by three simple guidelines. Number one. The game must be showed on equipment the church regularly uses in the course of ministry. 
So if the church already owns a big screen and sound equipment, then the game can be shown using this equipment. All right. In other words, okay, those of you uh, mega church pastors out there, you're purpose-driven, seeker-driven types, if you've been thinking this is the week to finally go out and buy that Jumbotron system for your uh, for your church uh, so that you can watch the big game, no, you can't. You You have to be already using it. And so if you get it by tomorrow, uh, that would be Tuesday, and use it for Wednesday night services. Oh, I forgot you guys don't do Wednesday night in-depth Bible studies. You know, though, set it up and, and invite some people over and have a Bible study. That way you can kind of, yeah, never mind. And two, churches cannot charge admission for the party. The NFL has stated, however, that churches may take up a donation to defray the cost of the event if they desire. Finally, to avoid any copyright infringements, Churches may want to call their event a big game party rather than a Super Bowl party. All right, so there you go. Public service announcement here at uh, Fighting for the Faith, completely free, by the way. Um, it just it, one of those things that uh, that we wanted to offer to uh, those of you in our audience who attend mega churches and want to watch the uh, the big uh, the big game on your big screen at church. Uh, rather than just seeing the lyrics to the song, This is the Air I Breathe, you would like to actually see something really worth looking at. Uh, the, the big game itself, well, the, those are the rules that you need to follow. And if you do those three things, well, <laughs> you won't want to f- run afoul. Uh, they won't throw a flag on the play. There will be no whistle uh, t- and a flag telling you that you've uh, you've committed a foul, and there won't be a need for instant replay or whatever. You can watch the big game at your big church on your big screen as long as you follow those three rules. That, by the way, completely free public service announcement here, you know, offered to you here by me and Fighting for the Faith. All right, uh, looking at the program proper today, uh, we're going to, um, let's see here. I got a, a Rick Warren update. He was recently on the Catalyst uh, podcast. We're going to listen to a couple of minutes of that and, uh, and ask what is going on there. And uh, then we're going to be listening to uh, John MacArthur. He's got a little segment on bad hermeneutics that I think you, everybody needs to listen to and memorize. And uh, and then, well, get this, folks. Brian McLaren has a brand new book coming out, and <laughs> wouldn't you know it, we've been able to uh, take a peek at some of the content of this upcoming book, and uh, I already have some pretty strong opinions about it. The name of the book is the A New Kind of Christianity, <laughs> like you could even do that. And uh, we're going <laughs> to – today will be our first installment uh, when we take a look at what Brian McLaren is uh, up to and what he's writing about. And uh, it, it's it, it, the name of the book is uh, New Kind of Christianity, subtitled by Roseboro. That's me. Uh, a, a, a little book of heresies. Just, you know, it's just chock full, teeming full of heresies. And uh, we're going to take a look at that. Because to talk about, yeah, I mean, I need an endless supply of things to talk about here on the program. And, well, Brian McLaren apparently has decided that uh, he wanted to help me out by making sure that I had plenty to talk about on the program. And so we're going to be looking at that. And then uh, we've got uh, audio from a video put out by the Emergent Church where they're claiming uh, the uh, the, the uh, TV. I don't know if you're familiar with the Ooze uh, website. Boy, it sounds like somebody might want to go get some, uh, you know, some 
killer, something to kill the bacteria on. I mean, if you have something oozing, you need antibiotics. I mean, that's all there is to it. But anyway, there's a very famous, iconic, emergent website called The Ooze. And Spencer Burke, whom I met at the Christianity 21 conference, nice guy, um, heretic galore. But uh, he's uh, uh, he, he's got a um, video interview where he's talking to another fellow emergent in Colorado. And apparently uh, they've come to the conclusion that we don't need to convert people to Christianity. We'll be listening to that. And then our sermon review today is uh, brought to us uh, from uh, Brick City Community Church, Sanford, North Carolina, Pastor Bill May. And uh, the name of the sermon is Life on Purpose. Yeah, Life on Purpose. And uh, the reason why this one got picked out is because it is the quintessential example of completely taking verses out of context, stringing them together and drawing conclusions that all run along the lines of the law. What you have to do with nary, uh, well, I think there was, I counted one gospel nugget, maybe there's two, uh, but nary a mention of what actually Christ has done for us. And uh, life on purpose, the right subheading might be the get busy sermon. And uh, so we'll be listening to that in hour number two. Lots of ground to cover and uh, make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers if you live in colder climates right now, um, <laughs> like I do. Uh, we're, I, I think by Thursday they're saying that we're going to have temperatures above freezing, but then it's going to turn right back around on Friday and Saturday and we're going to get snow. So, you know, fuzzy bunny slippers, perfectly okay if you're living in the frigid part of the North, of the uh, Midwest. Uh, those of you in New Zealand, uh, Australia, South Africa, summertime, sorry, fuzzy bunny slippers, es no bueno. It's not going to work. And uh, so you got to wait. And, of course, if you'd like to enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we do not have a problem with that. Why? Jesus drank. Plain and simple. I mean, if you have the what would Jesus do bracelet on, obviously Jesus was a drinker. Uh, so plain and simple. I mean, if Jesus was a drinker and he pulled off a sinless life, drinking isn't the sin. In fact, drunkenness is. And so we abide by that rule. Uh, anyway, all right. Um, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. And uh, what I'm going to do here. Uh, I've got audio from a recent appearance of by Rick Warren on the Catalyst uh, uh, podcast. Uh, not the Cattle Herders podcast, by the way, not to be confused with Cattle Herders, although I think Catalyst and Cattle Herders, uh, that those guys have something in common. Catalyst is one of these um, seeker-driven, purpose-driven, loose network conferencing organizations, uh, which basically they, they have two major conferences every year. And uh, and then two minor conferences, so a total of four conferences a year, the goal of which is to help those uh, CEO pastors who've made the transition from actually feeding God's sheep and being shepherds uh, to becoming cattle herders. Uh, 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 get along, little doggies. Um, the, you know, and they're and they're actually no longer pastor shepherds, but instead are CEO innovative change agents. Um, they, the, these conferences are designed to help those guys, these uh, CEO guys, uh, who seem to have forgotten what the biblical mandate is uh, regarding what a pastor should be doing. And uh, Rick Warren, uh, you know, and Bill Hybels and the gang, and you know, those, uh, those guys are the kinds of speakers that they get at the Catalyst Conference. 
Uh, although I think Hybels and Warren are kind of considered to be elder statesmen. I don't know if they really consider them to be really hip anymore. They might even re- be referring to Warren in the future as Papa Warren or something like that. Anyway, because um, I don't think he's really as hip as any of that. Anyway, so he was recently on the uh, Catalyst uh, podcast, and he was discussing uh, things uh, purpose-driven and what's you know what's uh, up for the next decade of uh, of Rick Warren. You're going to be surprised by some of the things you hear. So, without any further ado, here is Rick Warren on the Catalyst podcast. Uh, in the last eight years, I've had over. 8,700 of my members overseas. We've gone to uh, 156 countries. Actually, we have a goal. We have what we call our 10 by 10 goals, which will finish up by the end of 2010. And uh, that was uh, to be the first church in church history to literally go to all nations. Now, there are 195 nations in the world. There are 193 are part of the UN. Two of them aren't. North Korea and Bosnia are not a part of the UN. And by Okay, got to pause here for a second. Here's Rick's, Rick Warren waxing eloquently, tooting his own horn again. We wanted to be the first church in church history to go to all nations. Now, I want to point something out here. Uh, one of the things that I really do not like about the seeker-driven guys is uh, they don't consider themselves to be part of the church, like the whole body of Christ. Instead, they're creating little empires to themselves. And so when when... Uh, Rick Warren says he wants to be the first church to go to all nations. What he's really saying is, is he wants uh, he, that he wants to be the first individual congregation to send missionaries to every nation in the world. Okay, and uh, so he's proudly uh, talking about the fact that they plan on achieving this goal sometime this year. So uh, let's continue. Let's find out what they're going to do, though. By the end of this year, we will have gone to all 195 nations, uh, launched a peace plan in each of those things. What? You're going to send out, by the end of this year, you're going to have gone to all 195 nations in the, in the world and done what? Launched a peace plan? Um, where in the Bible are we commanded to launch peace plans? Um, which, which, by the way, kind of leads to the question is, what's the peace plan all about? Um, from, uh, December, uh, from a December 10th, 2007 article that appeared, um, in Assist Ministries, uh, if Jesus was walking the earth today, he would be, he would be with people with AIDS, says Rick Warren. Uh, this is from the Assist News Service, and uh, in here he discusses the peace plan. Um, he says, Rick Warren, quote, Now, under the issues of serving others, we have this giant problem called AIDS. We also have this giant issue called poverty, as well as the giant issues of diseases, illiteracy, equipping leaders, and promoting reconciliation. That's what the peace plan is all about. It's not just it's not just doing the five things that Jesus did. It's it's I'm sorry. It's just doing the five things that Jesus did. Apparently Jesus did five things, and here are the five things that Jesus did. He promoted reconciliation, equipped leaders, assisted the poor, uh, cared for the sick and educated the next generation. So Rick Warren is going to be the very first congregation in the history of the church to send out missionaries uh, to all 195 nations of planet Earth and uh, launch a peace plan. Does this qualify as actually fulfilling the Great Commission? 
go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, the peace plan sounds like a competing plan to what Jesus had in mind. A- am I missing something here? Let me see. It's, the peace plan is about doing the five things that Jesus did, promoted rec- promoting reconciliation, equipping leaders, assisting the poor, caring for the sick, and educating the next generation. How many people are actually going to uh, avoid the fires of hell as a result of Rick Warren's peace plan? Are they proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name only? Or is that not on their radar screen? I, I'm a little confused about this whole peace plan thing. Anyway, here's some here's some more Rick Warren. So uh, that was it. Now in the 21st uh, century, as we go in the 2010s, uh, now we're going to intergalactic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Spaceships. If you guys, just seeing if you're listening. <laughs> oh, we're here, man. We're here. Uh, so we start our mission to Mars real soon. Actually, what we're doing now is um, in this next year, we we uh, uh, are launching our decade of destiny, which is really over the next decade to probably plant around 10,000 churches uh, through Saddleback and through our network. We're starting uh, – uh, are going to start a seminary here. They're going to pl- plant 10,000 churches. How much you want to bet there are 10,000 seeker-driven, purpose-driven churches where the gospel isn't preached and Bible passages are ripped out of context in order to meet the felt needs of pagans? Uh, this isn't good news. At Saddleback, we're starting an intern program where we're going to take in about 100 church planters a year um, and uh, and really go after now that saddleback the, the base is built and we have uh, an incredible uh, mothership saddleback apparently incredible staff an incredible um uh, strong position uh in in every way to uh to uh to launch literally thousands of churches and so we're very excited about that uh one big news that probably a lot of people don't know about is this last year we dropped the term purpose driven um uh we <laughs> the what Rick Warren has dropped the term purpose-driven? Serious? <laughs> okay. I thought Rick Warren was saying that if you didn't, uh, if a church wasn't fulfilling the five purposes of a church, then it wasn't a church. And so uh, now he's dropped the term purpose-driven. Um. So... Uh, a skunk by any other name would smell as foul. I mean, I mean, did they just change the name of the purposes? I mean, wh- what have we done here? I... We don't even use that term anymore at Saddleback, and not that we're not committed to the purposes. We believe that. But you don't call them that. That the Great Commandment and Great Commission, the five purposes, will always be done. But um, uh, we we just said, you know, that uh, every term. Uh, has its day, and uh, it- maybe they were just getting tired of getting clobbered and beaten over the head because uh, there was so much organized resistance against purpose-drivenism that they had to change the name in order to confuse people uh, who were having their churches being taken over. I wonder what the new term is. If you know the new term, email me. My email address, by the way, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Well, let's continue. From its own success, it's still successful around the world, but we just thought, I'm tired of it. 
And I never meant for it to be a brand. And so we just said, let's just stop using that. Let's just do something else. I wonder, um, you know, there at Saddleback, um, I've been to the campus there uh, many a time. Uh, one of the streets leading into the Saddleback um, resort uh, is entitled, the name of it is Purpose Drive. I mean, uh, I, I don't understand why they didn't call it Purpose Drive North because then it would, you know, the, the way it would have looked on the sign would have been Purpose Drive and Driven, you know, anyway. Okay, so let me see if I have this straight. Rick Warren's starting a seminary. He's pl- he's going to plant 10,000 churches. He's sending missionaries around the world and will be the first congregation in uh, the history of the church to send missionaries out to plant uh, to to plant peace plans. Yeah, um in all the different nations of the world. And then he, to confuse everybody, he's uh, decided that he's going to uh, change the name of he's no longer using the term purpose driven he's changed it to something else is anyone confused and anyway it, the, so there's our uh, saddleback rick warren update for the day i thought you all would appreciate uh hearing from uh uh, uh rick warren on that so <clears throat> And uh, with that, we're going to switch gears. Last thing before we do, before we go into the break, is I want you to hear this segment uh, from John MacArthur talking about bad hermeneutics. Yeah, talking about Rick Warren. Okay, Rick Warren is the guy who is who has taken Bible twisting and bad hermeneutics to a completely new level. I mean. I mean, he makes the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons look like complete upstart hacks uh, when it comes to Bible twisting. I mean, ain't nobody more adept at taking a Bible passage and weaving it in and ripping it from context and then finding a way for it to support the points that he wants to make uh, rather than actually exegeting the Scripture. I mean, that's what Rick Warren's famous for. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just read the first two chapters of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. By the way, the, the there's endnotes uh, in that book. What you do, here's all you have to do. Go and get, get your copy of The Purpose Driven Life. Look at the endnotes because it'll tell you uh, what passages are being quoted. And then get a good English translation, such as the NASB, the ESV, even the NIV will do it in a pinch. Although I'm not the biggest fan of the NIV, even though I used it for 20 years of Bible study. Okay, still, that will work. Even the New Century version could could work in a pinch here. Not a paraphrase, though. Get a good English translation, and then all you got to do is read the first two chapters of the book, the purpose driven life. And any time Rick Warren says, the Bible says, or God says, or something like that, all you've got to do is look at what he quotes and what he's saying the text says, open it up in your good English translation, and then apply our three rules of biblical interpretation. They are context, context, and context. You apply those three things, and I'm telling you, you're going to go, what? What is Rick Warren saying? Yeah, that's because he's the king of Bible twisting and bad hermeneutics. I mean, there ain't nobody better than him. Although there's some people who are vying for his spot. I think that as uh, Rick Warren approaches uh, retirement age, 
uh, we can expect that there'll be some guys, you know, the, uh, I, I think Joel Osteen comes close to him, although Joel Osteen, I mean, I, I think he's just given up all pretense of actually pe- preaching from the Bible. He just has people hold up their Bibles at the beginning of his sermon and say, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. He did, I think he has people hold up their Bible and so that they can put it away. And, you know, that, now we've looked at our Bibles, you know, and you believe that this is ser- the sermon's based on the Bible. Uh, you know, now I'm going to tell you about all these different stories and I'm just not even going to even attempt to actually preach the Bible to you. So anyway, you know, that's kind of my stay- stand on this. So uh, here's uh, John MacArthur on bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a theologian's word to explain the science of Bible interpretation. And hermeneutics is a crucial building block in discerning theology. The task of the interpreter is to discern the meaning of Scripture. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent or study to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed because he's handling accurately the word of truth. If you don't handle it accurately, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And if you're going to handle it accurately, you have to be diligent. You have to work hard at it. Clearly, handling Scripture involves both of those things, hard work and diligence. It must be interpreted accurately. And those who fail to do that have reason to be ashamed. Now, there's so much to say about this that I can't give you a whole course in hermeneutics I teach some of that in the seminary as well as other professors, and I'm not intending to give you a seminary course, but let me just suggest three errors that need to be avoided that are not always avoided in contemporary interpretation. One, and they're very simple, do not make a point at the price of a proper interpretation. It's like the preacher who said, I have a good sermon if I could just find a verse to go with it. Do not prescribe your theology and then try to make the Bible fit it. I remember being at a Bible conference in Wisconsin one time, and I got into this Bible conference with another well-known preacher, and uh, we were preaching every night, and one day we were eating lunch, and I said, what are you going to preach on tonight? He said, I'm going to preach on the, the rapture of the church. I said, really, the rapture of the church? Great. What's your text? He said, John 11. I said, what? He said, John 11. I said, John 11, the rapture of the church isn't in John 11. He said, you wait and see tonight. (laughs) I said, fine, fine. That night, he preached on the rapture from John 11. That's the resurrection of Lazarus. And he allegorized it. Lazarus was the church. Martha was the Old Testament saints. And Mary was the tribulation saints. And he got this thing going. And the people were just sitting there saying, deep, deep. You know, they were just thinking this is the profoundest thing. They couldn't find it anywhere. They thought he was going deeper than they had capability to go. And afterwards, he said to me, had you ever seen that in John 11? To which I replied, as kindly as I could, no one has ever seen that in John 11. (laughs) And he took it as a compliment. The next night he got up and said, John MacArthur told me that no one but me had ever seen that in John 11. Now, I don't want to argue with the rapture of the church, but I will argue that the rapture of the church is not in John 11. And if you're going to make John 11 
say something that is true, then you're just as likely to make John 11 say something that what? That isn't true. That is not the way you approach Scripture. God has not hidden His truth from us, but its meaning is not always instantly clear. It demands hard work. That's why in 1 Timothy 5.17 it says that those elders who labor in the Word and doctrine are worthy of double honor because it's hard work. That's why God has given teachers to the church so that we can work hard in understanding God's Word correctly, instructing people in the Scriptures through persistent, conscientious labor in the Word. Now, today we have, frankly, a lack of respect for the work of gifted theologians, a lack of respect for the hard work of gifted expositors who have spent years studying and interpreting Scripture. There's a vast difference, by the way, between the whimsical kitchen table interpretations of laymen and the teaching of skilled men who work very hard to rightly divide the Word. I heard a radio interview with a charismatic woman pastor. She was asked how she got her sermons up. She replied, I don't get them up. I get them down. God delivers them to me. That's an all too familiar thing. I can promise you that God has never delivered one to me. I haven't gotten them down. I've had to get them up. Some people even believe it's unspiritual to study. After all, some say, taking another verse out of context, didn't Jesus say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say? So you just go into the pulpit and whatever comes into your mind you say, and that's why they invent their theology even as they speak, because they have no idea what's going to be said until they hear it. We should be greatly concerned about this ad-lib approach. You never, ever make a point, true or false, at the price of a proper interpretation. Otherwise, you are the final authority and not the Word of God. Secondly, don't spiritualize or allegorize the text. Some people think the Bible is a, is a fable to teach whatever you want to get across. A myriad of illustrations of this. But I remember back when Jerry Mitchell was on our staff and a young couple came into him for counseling, marriage counseling. He began to talk with them, and after about 30 minutes, he said, uh, you've been married only six months, and you're already on the edge of a divorce. Why did you ever get married? You're miles apart. Oh, said the husband, it was a sermon the pastor preached in our church. What was the sermon? Well, he preached on the walls of Jericho. Jericho? What does that have to do with marriage? Well, he said, God's people claimed the city, marched around it seven times, and the walls fell down. And he said if a young man believed God had given him a certain girl, he could claim her, march around her seven times, and the walls of her heart would fall down. That's what I did, and we got married. That can't be true, he said. You're kidding, aren't you? I remember him saying that. you got to be kidding. No, it's true. And there were many other couples who got married because of the same sermon. Some people believe their marriages were made in heaven. That was made in an allegory, and a bad one at that. That's the kind of interpretation that has gone on since the early days of the church, continues today, especially in the charismatic movement. I remember listening to a series on the book of Nehemiah. The whole purpose of the book of Nehemiah by this charismatic preacher was to teach charismatic doctrine. Jerusalem's walls were in ruin, and that was representative of the broken-down walls of human personality. Nehemiah was the Holy Spirit. The king's pool was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the mortar between the bricks was tongues. 
And what Nehemiah is teaching is the Holy Spirit wants to come rebuild your broken walls through the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. I had an opportunity to talk to that preacher about that, and we had an interesting conversation. I tried to show him that that was nothing but the invention of his own imagination, read from the New Testament back into the Old, but never the intention of Nehemiah, to which he agreed. That kind of preaching is a form of hucksterism. And as I said, you may come up with a truth that you teach, but if you spiritualize the text to do it, then you legitimize spiritualization of any text which leaves you with any fanciful conclusion. So the correct approach, you probably need to go to Jesus and remember that when he was walking on the road to Emmaus, he said, uh, Luke did, that beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the Scriptures. The word explained is hermeneuo, from which we get hermeneutics. He carefully interpreted the Old Testament. He used hermeneutics. He was a model of a teacher who used sound interpretive methods. So when we teach the Word of God, when we come to the conclusions that we come to, we want to be certain that we don't make severe errors. One, by making points at the price of proper interpretation. Two, by somehow concocting or spiritualizing something that isn't there. And three, and I've already talked about this, by superficial study. Superficial study is equally disastrous. One text in closing, and you know it very well, 2 Timothy 2.15. Just to remind you, so you're armed if you get into any conversation with folks like this. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. In the last phrase, handling accurately the word of truth. Beloved, this is where we must lay down the law. We must protect the integrity of Scripture by demanding a proper interpretation. That phrase, handling accurately, means cutting it straight. Paul was a tent maker. In order to make a tent, he had to cut a lot of pieces of material, either hide or woven hair. If he didn't cut the parts right, like making a dress or a shirt, that the hole didn't fit together, right? You cut the parts right, you sew them together, it works. And he's saying if you don't cut the pieces right, the whole theology doesn't fit together, and what you've got is people hacking up the pieces and putting together an obtuse, bizarre theology that does not make sense, is not coherent. We must know how to rightly divide the word of truth. Because if we don't, mishandling the Scripture and not interpreting it properly just feeds endless confusion. There you go. John MacArthur on bad hermeneutics. I thought he made an excellent point, and he didn't need my help at all as far as chiming in. What do you think? Uh, we're up on our first break, so this is a good time to remind you that if you would like to send me your feedback... You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. So the new pastor came in and shut down the Sunday school, uh, canceled the adult Bible study, no. dumped the hymnals, oh. sacked the choir, and put Damn. in a praise band and started preaching sermons that sound like they could be preached or done on Dr. Phil's program. It's awful. I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. Our chief weapon is purpose. Purpose and vision. Vision and purpose are two weapons. Our purpose and vision. And ruthless relevance are three weapons. Our purpose, vision, and ruthless relevance in an almost fanatical devotion to record are four weapons. Now, amongst our weapon are such elements as purpose, vision. I'll come in again. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody expects a purpose-driven inquisition. Amongst our weaponry are such diverse elements as purpose, vision, ruthless relevance, and almost fanatical devotion to Rick Warren and nice Hawaiian shirts. Oh, damn. I can't say it. You'll have to say it. Uh, what? You'll have to say what the bit about our chief weapons are. Uh, I, I couldn't do that. <clears throat> I didn't expect a kind of purpose-driven inquisition. Nobody uh, expects. Uh, expects no. Nobody expects the um, purpose-driven inquisition. Uh, I, I know. I know. Nobody expects the purpose-driven inquisition. In fact, those who our do. Chief weapons are our chief weapons are um, purpose, uh, uh, vision. Okay. And, okay. Stop. Stop that. Stop that. Our chief weapons are purpose. Blah 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 blah. Youth pastor Rick. Read the charges. Dude, you're like hereby charged with being divisive and not following our program. That's enough! Now, how do you plead? Well, we're innocent. Ha! 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 We'll soon change your mind about that! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled that will save you an additional 
$10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. All right, we're back. Warning, if you're climbing the fourfold ladder of the Lectio Divina in order to get to heaven, the last rung says, this is not a step. All right, need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you. If you haven't joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, this is a great time to do so. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and uh, once we get to a 1,000 listeners, that's our goal here. We're now in the month of February, which means we're completely on our own financially here. This is going to be one wild adventure. I get the feeling I'm going to be eating a lot of mac and cheese. <laughs> no, we're all we're okay at the moment. Uh, financially, we're okay. You guys have been very generous to us at the year end as well as in the month of January. Uh, however, this is not an unlimited supply, and we are still not to our thousand listeners yet who have joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month, and the way you join is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on the Join our crew button, and when you do, you get access to our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of great theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered theology, doctrine, and apologetics. And we have some resources in the Cove that you're going to need. Uh, that <laughs> Let's just put it this way. The segment that I'm going to be covering here in just a minute on McLaren's new book coming out Um. One of the resources that we have available there is uh, I am reproducing the entire book uh, by J. Gretchen Machen entitled um, uh, The Origin of Paul's Religion. And believe me when I tell you that this is the book that refutes McLaren, and it was written in 1921. That's right. This book was released in October of 1921, and uh, and Machen just decimates uh, Brian McLaren, it, it's, it's not even funny. I mean, it's not even a fair fight. And he's doing this from the grave. That's, I mean, McLaren can't even beat a dead guy. That's how bad it is. And I'm reproducing chapter by chapter every, uh, bit, every word, every footnote of that particular book. And it's available in our cove. Uh, right now we have chapters one and two up. And if you haven't started reading it, you're behind. You need to get out. So the way you get access to the cove, fightingforthefaith.com, click on join our crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to post office box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, now now time for some Brian McLaren news. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. 
For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Yep, that's right. The Outer Limits. Brian McLaren has a brand new book that's about ready to hit the stores, and it's called A New Kind of Christianity. Apparently the old kind. There's been a recall. Uh, you know, along with the Toyota recall, there's been a recall on Christianity, and so we're, we, <laughs> we've got to get rid of that current uh, Christianity, you know, the, the one that's been around for 2,000 years. We've got to get rid of it. And as a result of, you know, the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, that's all got to go. But we, McLaren is kind enough to have invented a brand new kind of Christianity that he would like to share with you. That's the name of his book. And so I obviously, like I said earlier, <clears throat> McLaren, he was very concerned that I would run out of things to talk about here at Fighting for the Faith. And uh, so I happened to uh, have come across a preview copy, if you would, of uh, important passages from McLaren's new book, and I would like to read to you different segments that I find to be rather interesting. And we're going to begin with the most important thing ever, the gospel itself. And uh, and like I said just a minute ago, uh, J. Gresham Machen of Princeton, uh, of Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, he absolutely destroyed McLaren. Uh, in 1921. I mean, that's, I mean, Jay Gresham Machen was so good that, uh, he just blew McLaren out of the water literally, literally 90 years ago, <laughs> 89 years ago. I mean, that, that's how good this guy was. And, uh, that, this is one of the resources that, uh, we're making available at the Fighting for the Faith Pioneer Christian Radio Cove. Anyway, here's Brian McLaren, and I'm gonna <clears throat> read some stuff to you from it, and then, Take a look at it biblically. Uh, the chapter is entitled, What is the Gospel? It's chapter number 14 from Brian McLaren's new book, A New Kind of Christianity. And it says, <clears throat> this is McLaren. Like a lot of Protestants, for many years, I knew what the gospel was. I knew that the gospel was the message of justification by grace through faith. Distorted or forgotten by those pesky Catholics, but rediscovered by our hero Martin Luther through a reading of our even greater hero, Paul, especially his magnum opus, The Letter to the Romans. If Catholics were called Roman Catholics because their headquarters is in Rome, we could have been called Roman Protestants because Paul's Roman letter served as our theological headquarters. As, an av- as its avid students, we knew without, the, without question what it was about. To my embarrassment, though, about 15 years ago, I stopped knowing a lot of what I previously knew. <laughs> That's because he bought into postmodernism. A lunchtime meeting in a Chinese restaurant unconvinced me and untaught me. My lunchmate was a well-known evangelical theologian who quite rudely upset years of theological certainty with one provocative statement. Quote, Most evangelicals haven't got the foggiest notion of what the gospel really is. I wonder who this nameless theologian is. He then asked me, how I would define the gospel. And I answered as any good Roman Protestant would, quoting Romans. He followed up with this simple but annoying rhetorical question. You're quoting Paul. Shouldn't you let Jesus define the gospel? When I gave him a quizzical look, he asked, what is the gospel according to Jesus? A a little humiliated, I mumbled something akin to, well, you tell me. And he replied, 
for Jesus, the gospel is very clear. The kingdom of God is at hand. That's the gospel according to Jesus, right? I again mumbled something. Uh, well, maybe I guess so. Seeing my lack of conviction, he added, shouldn't you read Paul in light of Jesus instead of reading Jesus in light of Paul? I didn't admit to it to the theologian as I, I started deep into my hot and sour soup, but I had no idea what he was talking about. As a constitutional reader of the Bible, I considered the words of Jesus and Paul pretty much up on par. Beyond that, I, I had always assumed that the kingdom of God meant kingdom of heaven, which meant going to heaven after you die, which required believing the message of Paul's letter to the Romans, which I understand to teach a theory of atonement called penal substitution, which was the basis for the formula of forgiveness of original sin called justification by grace through faith. But my lunchmate's question unsettled all of that. They bugged me so much that I started rereading the Gospels with new intensity and became clear to, that my knowledge needed to be doubted and at least some of my accumulated learning needed to be either unlearned or supplemented. Jesus' one-word preface to his Gospel, repent, made sense to me as never before. Repent means literally to become pens pensive again or, or having a change of mind or heart. And I needed to become pensive again about the Gospel and its meaning for the world and for me. The kingdom of God is at hand, or in, in the words of my friend Rod Washington, God's new benevolent society is already among us. God's benevolent society is already among us. Yeah, that's what the um, how the emergence to find the gospel is, is that, that uh, Jesus was declaring his benevolent society here on earth. We continue. I've devoted two entire books to understanding what that simple phrase meant, and means, and I still feel there's so much more to discover. I, along with many others, have written about how the phrase shimmers and glows in relation to the dominant social reality of Jesus' time, the kingdom of Caesar or the empire of Rome. We've explored how the kingdom-oriented term Christ means liberating king and the one who will free God's people from oppression, confront and humble their oppressors, and then lead both into a better day. That's apparently the gospel. It's about confronting Caesar and uh, those who are oppressed by him. Okay, so now this begs the question. Does Jesus teach a different gospel than the Apostle Paul? And how can we know for sure whether or not that's the case? I'm glad you asked. First of all, Paul and Peter are not at odds. Yeah, it's it's absolutely 100% true, Okay. And uh, we'll just kind of dive into this kind of uh, higgly-piggly, if you would. But I think this is important for you all to, to get and to understand, okay? First and foremost, uh, this understanding that Jesus, the kingdom that Jesus was declaring was one of uh, basically sticking it to the Caesar man and that his benevolent society was here on earth. No, when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was talking about himself, He's the king. The kingdom is at hand because the king himself is present. He's here. And he called people to repentance. And if you take a look at John the Baptist, his ministry, what was he doing? He was calling people to repentance and baptizing them for the forgiveness of sins. He was preparing the way. So first and foremost, this idea that Jesus was somehow that the the gospel the gospel message that Jesus was proclaiming is that he was announcing his benevolent society for all the world and and sticking it to the Caesar man and all the oppressors of the world nowhere do you have any of the apostles teaching that 
none whatsoever. None ever anywhere whatsoever. So this kind of comes to the question. Where did Paul get his gospel? How can we know where he got his gospel from? And did Paul ever have his gospel, uh, you know, basically examined by the other guys who spent three years with Jesus? Well, the answer to the question, all of the, well, it, the answer to that last question is absolutely. Let me go to one of my favorite passages, one that I constantly reference here at Fighting for the Faith. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Okay. Listen carefully to the verbs. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Notice Paul here in 1 Corinthians 15 is going to lay down the gospel. He's going to define the gospel. Okay? I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul did not invent the gospel that he preached in the book of Romans, that he lays out in the book of Romans and in the book of Galatians. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, he's making it clear. He's reminding them, I'm going to remind you, Corinthians, of the gospel that I preached to you. And on top of it, this is the gospel that I received. Whom did he receive it from? Answer, Peter and the other disciples, the apostles. But let me, let me, for I, here's what Paul says. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and to the 12 and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time. Gary Habermas does some great work on this passage, by the way, and Habermas points out that in the Greek the way this is formulated, this is more than likely. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, uh, 3 through 7, uh, is one of the earliest creeds of the Christian faith. And it's recorded for us in Scripture. So it's an inscripturated creed. Think of Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, or Athanasian Creed. Here we have an early creed, and the early creed says that uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the Twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to the Apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. This is a creed. And Paul didn't make this up. This was not the invention of Paul. This was not some fancy thing that he came up with. No, this was something he received from the other apostles. This is the gospel that was being preached by Paul, not by, I mean, by Peter, by James, by John, yeah, by the other, by Bartholomew, you name the rest of the apostles. This is, 
the gospel that they preached. And they, and they, not only that, not only were they preaching it, but they summarized it in creedal form. Okay. Now we learn more about this, you know, Paul's receiving of this creed, if you would, by looking at his, um, epistle to the, uh, Galatians. We read, okay. Paul writing Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the, uh, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had run in vain. So here we've got Paul saying that he went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus and he went up, okay, to lay out his his gospels to make sure that he proclaims among the Gentiles in order to make sure that he was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they are, were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, whom deemed, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed pillars, perceived the grace was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship and to Barnabas as well, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the uncircumcised." So the gospel that Paul preached, he actually made a trip to Jerusalem and laid out his gospel before those who seemed influential, Peter and James and John, and they added nothing to his gospel. What was the gospel he preached? Christ crucified for our sins. Salvation by grace through faith. Now, you know, one of the things this funny enough, this is just an old liberal heresy, old liberal idea that Paul's gospel is Jesus is different than Peter's gospel. Um, than Paul's gospel. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, here we, you know, we, we just read in Galatians chapter two makes it clear that the, the gospel that Paul preached was the same gospel that uh, the other guys preached. Same exact gospel. Okay. Now, Acts chapter 15, by the way, records for us the very first official church council, if you would. And um, let's read uh, what Acts chapter 15 says. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem uh, to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. 
But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and says, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. These are the words of the apostle Peter talking about Gentiles who had their hearts cleansed by faith, by grace through faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. Luke puts those words of salvation by grace through faith, not in Paul's mouth. Luke puts them in Peter's mouth. And that's the exact same gospel that the apostle Paul preached. Now, unless you're going to make the claim that Peter, Paul, Jude, James, all of these disciples, after Jesus' ascension, they completely biffed it and didn't even know what the gospel was, uh, then, you know, I mean, that's really what you've got to do here. But notice what the liberals are doing, what these new neo-postmodern liberals are doing. They're trying to drive a wedge between the gospel that Paul preached and basically say it's different than the gospel that Jesus preached. The problem is is that they're they're eisegeting. Jesus nowhere was teaching that his benevolent society was being announced here on the earth. That's a liberal eisegesis. And nowhere do you have Paul, Luke, James, Peter... Uh, John, any of these guys laying out the doctrine of Christ's benevolent kingdom on earth come to, uh, to, uh, to basically, uh, you know, be a liberating king against the oppressor, the oppressing Caesars. Nowhere do you see that. Nowhere do the apostles, you know, define that at all. So what's happened is, is that the liberals want to cut you off from Paul and then they're going to ice, they eisegete regarding uh, what Jesus has done. Now, the funny thing is, is that um, Jesus himself, in case you're not aware, actually uh, approved of the Apostle Paul's um, message. For those of you who uh, are into red letters, the red, you red letter liberals out there, there's a section of red letters in the book of Acts. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's true. Okay, there was no difference between the gospel that Paul preached and Jesus preached. Otherwise, Jesus would have rebuked Paul, and he doesn't. Let me read for you. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. We read, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ uh, was Jesus, that the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Justice, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. 
And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. In the ESV, verses 9 and 10 are in red letters. So if Jesus Christ had a problem with the gospel that Paul was preaching, he wouldn't have said to him, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent. If Paul was preaching a gospel that was completely different than Jesus's gospel, the gospel that Jesus preached, then Jesus would have said to Paul, shut up. Stop speaking in my name. You don't even understand what the gospel is. You and Peter and everybody else, you've got it all wrong. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. So if Jesus had a problem with what Paul was preaching, then uh, this doesn't make any sense at all. The only conclusion that we can come to is that Brian McLaren has left Christianity. He is now an open and defiant heretic who is attacking the biblical gospel of salvation by grace through faith on account of Christ's penal substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. We must call him to repentance of his false doctrine and the forgiveness of sins for preaching the false doctrine that he is preaching because he is truly preaching a false and heretical gospel that is not biblical and not in accord with what the church has believed, taught, and confessed from the earliest days after Jesus' ascension. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that Paul and Peter and James and John all got it wrong. None whatsoever. And it's a liberal mythology and it's a liberal rewriting of history to say that Jesus' message was different than Paul's message. That's just blasphemous and historically inaccurate and biblically false. McLaren needs to repent. Talk about repentance, by the way. I'd like to uh, leave you with, um, well, tell you what, we're going to take our second break and when we come back, we're going to listen to a little bit more emergent speak before we do our um, sermon review today. So you don't want to miss that. Apparently the emergents are now claiming we don't need to even convert people to Christianity. Yeah, it's sad, but true. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Think Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. 
of the sissy, brainsy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. That will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Before we do our sermon review, um, you got to hear this. The emergent guys uh, are basically they've got they've got a completely different gospel. By the way, more proof that uh, postmodernism is not compatible with biblical Christianity. These guys are claiming that you don't even need to uh, convert people from other religions. I, I am not making that up uh, so without any further ado here's spencer burke and i forget who his friend is here we'll find out in a second here from the ooze.tv again if you have something oozing you definitely need to go see a doctor antibiotics are in order think forward with spencer burke
Welcome to the TV. My name is Spencer Burke, your host for Think Forward. Today, we're in the Black Forest in Colorado with Tim King here in his study. Thanks so much for having us on. It's pretty exciting to be with you. Tim King, okay. Yeah. Hey, good to be with you. I'm glad you yeah. guys came. Yeah. Well, Think Forward, we always try to tackle some current issues kind of with a forward-thinking idea. And uh, let's just dig right into it. It seems like all religions have these doomsday scenarios at the end which seems kind of the antithesis to at least the Christian message of love, care, compassion, you know, versus fear, suspicion. Right. Wait a second. The biblical text have an end of the world scenario. Have you read, have you read second Peter? Have you read the book of revelation? Have you read Jesus in the gospels? You notice he's starting off by, you know, by just talking about religions in general, rather than saying, here's what the scriptural text says. Yeah. Help me out. Why do you think uh, why do you think we've kind of and not just us, but many religions have kind of fallen to that uh, that angle? Well, there's sort of this shadow self that comes, I think, when we allow the ego or the false self to attach to form. Mm -hmm. And so if you believe in an end of the world scenario where Christ is coming again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, which, by the way, is clearly taught in the biblical text and reaffirmed. In both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, um, in just about every uh, good systematic theology deals with eschatology and looks at it from the biblical point of view. But apparently we're talking about a false self that's attached itself to the Bible. And that's their explanation here. Okay, There's no greater form than our belief systems. And when you combine a shadow self with a belief system... All of a sudden, you can overturn some pretty good scenarios and make them catastrophic. Yeah. Oh, so this is a the shadow self has taken over. That's see the 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 only reason why Christianity for two thousand years has taught that Christ is coming again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and He's going to destroy the current heavens and earth and replace them with a new heavens and a new earth, is because our shadow selves apparently have gotten completely out of control. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of religions do that. And you mentioned in Christianity, particularly, here's the Jesus who came not to abolish, but fulfill. Uh, he said, I can- fulfill what the law for us. That, that's what this plays into imputed righteousness. Notice he's half quoting the scriptures came to give you abundant life. Uh, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so what story ultimately gets told? Is it the good, the good thing of the coming new earth? Or is it the destruction of the old earth? Or what, what's going on there? And I think that shadow side, that framing of the narrative in, in ways that are catastrophic comes through. And what we see is a doomsday theology. Mm-hmm. And the question is, does the Bible teach a doomsday theology? The answer is yes, but the day of doom is also the first day of the new creation. Jesus likens the end of the world and the things leading up to it as birth pains. Oh boy! I think it would help a lot if we if we kind of backed up. I think it would help a lot if you actually just open up the Bible and start letting Jesus and the apostles speak for themselves, because it's obvious you don't know what you're talking about. Plain and simple, okay. Listen, I'm not a prophet, at least not the kind that's capable of seeing into the future. Okay, I have not had a vision of the future. I have, I, I have not, get this, I have not had a face-to-face meeting with Jesus Christ. I could not tell you what color his eyes are, although I would suspect they're brown. 
I could not tell you how long his hair is or how big the scars are in his hand or his side. I ha- I can't even tell you if he's suntanned or if he's pasty white. I couldn't tell you. I've not, I've not had a face-to-face meeting with this guy, nor have I met Peter, nor have I met Paul, nor have I met James, nor have I met John, nor have I met any of the other disciples who hung out with Jesus. Uh, as a result of it, um, I can't really question them about things like this to get more data. However, I do know for a fact that those guys left records for us of what they saw, what they experienced, what they taught, what they believed, and what they heard from Jesus. That being the case, um, I, I'm going to go with the written record with those guys. I mean, that's as good as any face-to-face data th- that we have at this point, and I'm going to trust those guys. This 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 King guy. When was the last time? Who did? When when did he meet Jesus? Has he had a face-to-face with him? Why is he giving us this new teaching that contradicts what Jesus said and what the apostles taught? This is what we call a a lesson in futility or an example of suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. Looked at the text, not so much as a photograph with a one-to-one ratio Mm -hmm. and read these things very literally, but understood it more as a map which is a pointer, Mm -hmm. just as Jesus was not so much the point, but the pointer to God. What? Jesus isn't the point? He's the pointer to God? Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, dude. Jesus is the point. That's the other thing. If you go go and read the, uh, the Pauline epistles, and you know what you find out? Jesus isn't, is, is the object of the apostle Paul's faith. He uh, in in the in the way the apostle Paul thinks and I think this is consistent with the other apostles too. Jesus is God in human flesh. He's not just any old God in human flesh. Understand, Paul comes up through pharisaical legalistic Judaism. And the one thing that you can say about Judah uh, to Pharisees and Judaism of the 1st century, it is staunchly staunchly monotheistic. And when they, and in fact, the missionary efforts that kind of paved the way for, for Christianity in the first century of Judaism, the missionary efforts of Judaism, if you wanted to become a Jew and you were a Gentile, you had to renounce your citizenship in a very real way. You had to basically abandon all other gods. Christ, Judaism and Christianity are exclusive religions. Okay, and the Apostle Paul believed, taught, and confessed that Jesus Christ is God, was the Yahweh of the Old Testament in human flesh. He was constantly taking passages from the uh, Old Testament where Yahweh was speaking and plugging them in to where uh, to reference Jesus. No, I'm sorry, Mr. King, but um, Jesus is the point. Jesus wasn't pointing us to God. He was pointing us to himself. Because he's God in human flesh, the object and the author and the perfecter of our faith. Who is the point? And I think if we started following those kind of maps and put down our photographs, 
then all of a sudden we might start recasting the future in constructive rather than catastrophic ways. Oh, so basically we just have to whatever he said. It doesn't even make any sense. So what you need to do is stop having the photograph view of the one-to-one ratio and actually see the text The text as a map pointing us to something, and then you can recast the map in a, in a way that you can you can jettison the, uh, the destructive scenarios and embrace a positive ending for everybody. Well, and a lot of times I notice uh, myself others, um, you know, we focus out on the future or heaven or what's next, um, and we really can miss the kingdom here and now. Which is the only moment we have. I mean, the present moment. What? We miss the kingdom here and now, huh? Oh, this is just postmodern mythology. Is the only thing that's real. If you talk about the past, it's no longer here. The future is no longer uh, something we, we need to be obsessed with to the demise of the present moment because the present moment. What does any of this mean? This is just complete gobbledygook. Sets that trajectory for the future. And so if you're consumed in the present with a future that's not a reality, what are you doing with the reality that is? Mm-hmm. You're just wasting it away. Mm-hmm. What we have to do is reframe who the true self is. If we really get down to... We we have to reframe who the true self is? Can you point to one passage of scripture that talks about our true self and doesn't use the message paraphrase? To it. Then we can say, wait a minute. Our stories, our belief systems, at best are pointers. Mm -hmm. They're not our identity. And so... Oh, this is just a complete... <clears throat> but these are he's saying words that have no meaning. This is just complete gobbledygook, subterfuge, doublespeak. I mean, it, look, here's my classic example. Okay, he's using nouns. He's got verbs. We've got direct objects. I mean, that's all grammatically there. Let me give you an example of a sentence like this. If I were to tell you, listen, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. It's a it's a it's a completely sound and solid uh, sentence. But it doesn't mean anything. So all of these identity conflicts, I think, could go away if we would take on more of a persona of saying, look, since our belief systems are merely pointers to that which is beyond and unnameable. And un- oh, whoa. There are, our belief systems are only pointers to that which is beyond and unnameable? Wrong. That which was from the beginning has been revealed. God in human flesh. He's not unnameable. God has named himself. He's not mysterious in the sense that he's revealed much about himself. He has revealed himself in Christ, Jesus. Unbelievable. Unknowable. Let's meet beyond our belief systems Mm -hmm. in this area of mystery and humility. And I think if the world meet beyond our belief systems in mystery and humility. What does that remind me of? What does that remind me? You know, it does remind me of something. Oh, yeah. Well, since uh, postmoderns don't believe that you can actually know the truth and with any degree of specificity. Um, and instead, they, em- quote, embrace mystery. This reminds me of two things. The first that comes to mind.
That's right. Brian McLaren and uh, this King guy and Spencer Burke worship uh, mystery. They don't believe that you can actually know the truth. And so we're supposed to just worship and lay ourselves at the feet of mystery. Revelation chapter 17, verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name, the name Mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the drunk woman with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast and the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was, it is not, and is come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated, and they are also the seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was, and is not, and is in the eighth, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. And it goes to destruction. Yeah. Mystery. Babylon. We continue. Started coming together and the world religion started coming together to celebrate the dignities of each sacred narrative. Mm -hmm. All meeting beyond mm -hmm. our belief systems at, at the feet of mystery. Then I think you've got phenomenal potential. Wow. Let me back that up. This is, I mean, this guy is calling for all of the world religions to celebrate each other's sacred narratives beyond belief at the feet of mystery. Knowable. Let's meet beyond our belief systems mm -hmm. in this area of mystery and humility. Mm. And I think if the world started coming together and the world religion started coming together, to celebrate the dignities of each sacred narrative, mm -hmm. all meeting beyond mm -hmm. our belief systems at, at the feet of mystery, then I think you've got phenomenal potential to really begin to create this tipping point towards celebration mm -hmm. instead of doomsday. Yeah. Now wow, this guy wants to unite all the religions at the feet of mystery. Is it any wonder that Scripture names the great harlot Mystery Babylon? I think the two are, are synonymous at this point. Two, one and the same. Wow. Absolutely just wow. This isn't Christianity. It's not biblical Christianity. It's not what, the, what Jesus taught. It's not what the apostles taught. This is just pure postmodern arrogance and the suppressing of the truth with lies, absolute lies. All right, we're going to switch gears here. It's uh, time for our sermon review. 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Brick City Community Church, Sanford, North Carolina, Pastor Bill May. Sermon is entitled, Life on Purpose. Apparently he didn't hear that uh, purpose-driven is no longer the term du jour of the uh, seeker-driven guys. What are you listening for in this sermon? Proper distinction of law and gospel. Will you hear about your sin? If you do, what's the solution? You being more obedient or Christ in him crucified for your sins? Will this sermon turn Christianity into a workspace religion where you've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get busy? Or will it proclaim the good news that Christ has done it all for you and call you to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Regeneration and hope based upon what your great God and Savior has done for you. Well, that all remains to be seen. If there's any hint as to what you're probably going to listen to, it's the music that you're listening to right now. So without any further ado, here's our sermon review today from Brick City Community Church. Um, Life on Purpose, Don't Waste Your Life. Happy New Year. I'm going to make a statement and I want you to repeat it after I make it. Everyone ends up somewhere. Not everyone ends up somewhere on purpose. All right, look at your neighbor and say, everyone ends up somewhere. Look at your other neighbor and say, few people end up somewhere on purpose. Let me ask you, This question, and it's something we all think about at the beginning of the year. Where do you want to be at the end of 2010? Where do you want to be? Where where do you want to be in your life? Where do you want to be in your marriage? Where do you want to be in your career? Where do you want to be with God? Because that statement rules. Everyone ends up somewhere. The truth is, on December 31st, 2010, your life is going to be a sum total of a year. And what went by, you will never have a chance to change. It's, 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 those days are gone. The question is, are you going to be where you want to be in December 31st, 2010? Are you going to be there? Because, you know, if you, if you go through life... And- Do I need a crucified and risen Savior to get me where I want to be on December 31st, 2010? Uh, where do I want to be? <laughs> Wherever God has me to be. I mean, seriously, I don't know. I would like to be alive. Um, I, you know, where do I want to... What are you talking about? And your aim is to, well, wherever I end up is where I end up. This kind of happy-go-lucky, let's all get a van, paint flowers on it, be hippies, smoke pot, and, and love one another. If that's your idea of life, I'm telling you, you may be disappointed at the end of the year. You may look back on your life and regret. You may look back on your life and go, dang, I missed some opportunities. Everyone ends up somewhere. Not everyone ends up somewhere on purpose. And then your purpose, what is it? So if you say, well, that's not going to be me, Bill. I'm headstrong. I'm determined. I'm going to be here in the end of 2010. You know, I'm- 
How is this even like a legitimate biblical question? I'm struggling here. Oh, wait, I know. My purpose, my purpose is to um, expose bad preaching. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be this. Here's another question then. Is that purpose your purpose? Is that purpose someone else's purpose? Is that purpose going to bring you life and fulfillment? Is that purpose God's purpose? See, I would have to think that I'm just assuming here, so, you know, I don't want to get too crazy, but I would have to think that everyone in here right now is here because you want to be here. I mean, I don't think, uh, I mean, we might use this tactic later on to get people to come to church, but I don't think anyone used a gun and said, you go or I'll blow your brains out, you know? And we're all here because we want to be here. We're all here because we want to be with God. We want to follow Him. We want to walk step in step with Him. Where He is is where we want to be. You know, I believe that. Everyone ends up somewhere. Not everyone ends up somewhere on purpose. And real purpose in life is rooted in God. It's found in God. It all starts with Him. In the Bible, the very first book of the Bible is Genesis. The first book of the Bible, the first line in the first book of the Bible says this, In the beginning, God. It doesn't say, In the beginning, me. That's some of us live that way, don't we? In the beginning, me, because it's all about me. Come on, sing with me. It's all about me. It's not about you. Look at your neighbor say, it's all about me, baby. Sometimes we live our life that way, don't we? But listen, living our lives that You know, funny enough, I actually have a song to that effect. It's all about me. all about you now the greatest collection of me worship ever assembled on one cd it's all about now i lift my name on high all 20 songs all about you this amazing collection is great to share with friends if you have any everyone can join in the worship with you for you and about you because you are unique and you love you. There is none like me. No one else All this can for do only $19.95. Like Operators do. are standing by to serve you. And I am why I sing. And I am why I live. If you order now, you'll also receive a second CD of Yule Tide Favorites. I sing. No. 1-800-ME-ME-ME or order online at memyselfandi.com Call today because no one can praise you like you. Yeah, that just fit perfectly right there. That way will not get us where we are to where we want to be. We're just like that two-year-old sitting in the middle of the floor throwing a temper tantrum, wanting what we want for us. Look at your neighbor do that. Look at your neighbor go, Oh, don't ever do that again. Oh, wah. (laughs) 
See, real, proof, real purpose in life is rooted with God. It all starts with Him. And if it all starts with God, then there are three questions we need to discover and answer. And, and, and uh, just Real quick question, Bill. Um, are any of these questions actually laid out for us in the clear teachings of the apostles, Jesus Christ, the prophets, uh, Moses, any of those guys, have they, la- have they asked these questions for us in a clear, laid-out fashion like this? Find the answer for it in order to move in the direction of life on purpose. These three questions are, what is God... Which of the apostles taught about the importance of having a life on purpose? God want from me, what does it take, and why should I do it? What does God want from me? What is it going to take, and why should I do it? In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 through 17, it says... Okay, want to point something out here. In typical seeker-driven, pietistic fashion... He's starting, he's taking verses out of context. And where are we? We're at the tail end of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5. What's he missed and what's he completely skipped over? Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, which are all about the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So he's skipped over the good news of Christ and him crucified for our sins, salvation by grace through faith on account of Christ and he's gone right to the stuff that flows from that faith, from that gospel, uh, the fruits of repentance in, in light of the good news. And he's preaching, he's basically preaching root, uh, fruits without the gospel. And he's turning them into rank law. Big no no. Says this in the Bible, and you need to pull your notes out because I'm going to have to give you some stuff to write that's not in your notes and all that stuff. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Be careful, circle that word careful. Be careful how you live, not as fools, but as those who are wise. Look at your neighbor and say, stop being a fool, fool. But see, the thing is they're being foolish here because they've skipped over the gospel. Just so you know, there's a great saying. I forget who said it, but I'll rip it off. I can't get credit for it, though. And that is just that a gospel assumed is a gospel not preached. A gospel that's assumed is a gospel that is not preached. So here you got this, uh, impa- this basically this imperative. Uh, you need to stop living as fools and be wise. Out of context, law. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. I just thought it would be funny. Not as fools, not as fools. But as those who are wise, I want to live like a wise person. I don't want to live like some fool. I want. I don't want people to look at me and go, "That boy's a fool." You know, that's the that's terrible. Too late. Who would want anyone to say that about them? And he says, "If that's what you're going to do, then he says, make the most of every opportunity for doing good. In these evil days, don't act." Thoughtlessly, I want you to uh, circle thoughtlessly. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. See, we can live our lives carelessly and thoughtlessly and miss what God has for our life. Yeah, that's exactly what the sermon is doing. It's very careless and thoughtless, and it's missing the gospel. It's skipping over the gospel passages in Ephesians and going right to the imperatives that come, that flow from the gospel and from repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ. 
And now it's turning Christianity into a performance-based religion, which it is not. We can miss his purpose for our lives. Look at your neighbor and say, don't miss God's purpose for you. Put bluntly, God's purpose is for you to hear the good news of what Christ has done for you and for you to repent of your sins and your self-righteousness and to trust in him completely for the forgiveness of your sins. Then and only then, through the working of the Holy Spirit, are you regenerated and are you capable of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? But because the gospel's missing, you're missing the whole point here, Bell. So we got three basic questions we got to ask. Let's look at the first one. What does God want? What does God want? He wants my whole life. He wants every piece of it. Oh, I thought you were going to say something hard. Like that's easy? Go ahead and try. Tell me how that's working out for you, Bill. I mean, you preached the sermon just a couple weeks ago. How are you working out and giving all of you to Jesus and to God? Because keep in mind, every time you sin, that would be tantamount to you taking back part of you, uh, if not all of you. He wants all of it. Absolute, total surrender. Now, that has different meaning for different people. Okay, I got to contradict him here. Um, Let's see here. Then they said to Jesus, this is John chapter 6, verse 28. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Okay, some Jews came to Jesus and asked Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work of God is to believe in Jesus Christ. It is not to give all of you to God. That's, this guy's way off. At different seasons of their life. But I can tell you what it includes at each level, and that is, it's a secret, ladies and gentlemen. It's a secret. You ready? You ready? Look at your neighbor. Say, are you ready? Are you ready? Do you know what it includes? Everything. Everything. There isn't a time following God that you get to hold on to something for yourself because you've earned it. God says everything. I want it all. I want everything. I want your dreams. I want your hopes. Where does it say in the scriptures that God wants our dreams and our hopes? And where does it say we can even give them to him? Where is this taught? You're saying God wants everything. Where does it say this? What are you ba- what text of scripture are you basing these claims upon? I want your future. I want your children. I want your happiness. I want your wealth. I want your health. I want your children. Please take them God, they're killing me. I want everything. I want your ambition. I want your arguments. I want everything. I want everything. You, listen, you have no uh, rights. Boy, this sure does sound appealing, doesn't it? Yeah, this is how the disciples shared the gospel, isn't it? Mm. 
Now that everybody's just like, screw it, man. I'm done with this bill. I can't do this. That's what God wants. The person who would say, I can't do this, is, is absolutely right. How do we do this, Bill? How do we give all of ourselves to God? Because that would assume that we could do this sinlessly and perfectly. Good luck. Tell me how it works out for you. I'm going to go the other route and just trust in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and believe that Christ has done it all for me. That's what God wants. And in a minute, we're going to talk about what's it going to take to get there and, and why. But that's what he wants. There, there is no way to hold back. Romans six thirteen. look at what Paul writes. He says, give yourselves what? Completely. Give yourself. Okay, notice completely. what he's doing here again. That means unreservedly. That means he's Romans. Oh, man. He's ripping out a verse from context. What did he say? Romans 6 13. Okay, what are our three rules for correct biblical interpretation or sound hermeneutics? Context, context, context. Okay. Let's see. Without here. holding anything back. <clears throat> Stop trying to talk here, guy. I, I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Stop interrupting. <sighs> Let's see here. Uh, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read Romans chapter 6. Here we go. Context, context, context. Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How could? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead uh, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Are you hearing any gospel here so far? Oh, yeah, we are. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you, its, uh, to make you obey its passions. Notice here, even 6.12 is saying that for us to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies as a result of the gospel, as a result of the fact that our sins have been forgiven, that we have died with Christ, we've been buried with Christ, our sins have been forgiven. Therefore, in light of this reality, don't, don't obey sin in its passions. It's not just, it's not just the imperative don't, uh, to, uh, to not give in to sin. It's in light of the gospel, don't do this. In light of the gospel reality that you have been buried with Christ and raised with Christ, don't give in to sin's passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So even the imperative in 13 is based upon the indicative in the earlier verses in 6 that preach the gospel. And I would say in the greater context, going to chapter 5, chapter 4, and chapter 3, which clearly teach that we are saved by grace through faith alone. 
sanctification flows from justification. This guy's preaching just raw law without any mention of what Christ has done for us. This is not how the Christian, how Christian sanctification is worked inside of a Christian. Christian sanctification is focused in on Christ and what he's done. And from that fruit of repentance and the gospel flow good works. Give yourselves to God since you have been given new life and use your what? Your whole body as a tool to do what's right for the glory of God. I want you to circle two words. I want you to circle completely and I want you to circle whole. That's what God is looking for. And there's no verse in the Bible where it says you can be a follower of Christ and do whatever you want with your life. Great. That means you're not a follower of Christ because I know you sin, Bill. Just run your logic to its logical conclusion. You're not even in. You're not even a true follower of Christ because you still sin daily and sin much. Right? No verse whatsoever. And some of you, you think of your life like a pie. You know, since we just got through the holidays and ate too much of it anyway, you think of your life as a pie. You got, you got the, the career life pie. You got the social life pie. You got the, the marriage slice of pie. You've got the sex slice. Maybe that's bigger. Maybe that's smaller for some people. I don't know. You've got the retirement life that you're planning slice of pie. And then some fool tricked you to come in here to get a gas card or whatever, and you came, and then you decided to follow Jesus, so you decided to give God the remaining piece of the pie. It's like, God, I'll save you the I don't even know what he's talking about. Christ died for the whole pie. Christ died for all of my sins. I belong to Christ. He's redeemed and purchased all of me, not some of me, not different wedges of my life pie the biggest piece you know god says i don't want a piece of the pie i want the whole pie i want all of it i've got to have all of it and he's not shy about asking this is he He's very clear on what he expects. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, it says, this is what the Lord... Notice he's taking a verse out of context again. What's he doing? One verse here ripped, one verse there ripped, one verse here there ripped, one verse there ripped, and then stringing them together on a clothesline and telling a narrative about all of these out-of-context verses. And he's not actually teaching you what the Bible says. Lord your God wants you to do. Respect the Lord and do what he has told you to do. Love him. Watch this. Serve the Lord your God with your whole being. This is from the Mosaic law, dude. How are you? How's that working out for you? Are you loving God with your whole being? Keep in mind, every time you sin, that's proof that you're not. With everything that you are. Look at your neighbor and say, Give it up. Bill, I say you first. You first. Go ahead. As soon as you can accomplish it perfectly, uh, then you can have the authority to talk about this. C.S. Lewis was an, a famous author. A Christian wrote some different Christian books and, and different things. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. We watched the movies and stuff. He, he's a pretty cool dude. I'd have probably hung out with him. Trust me, he, he would not have hung out with you. 
Then I'd have probably beat him up a couple times, but I still would have hung out with him. I might have given him some of my ribs, but maybe. He says this, he says, the only thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. If it's true, then if the book is really true, it deserves your entire life. It is, if it's not true, we ought to pack up and go home right now. He says, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Either your whole life, it's either your whole life, or if it's not true, you ought to just chuck the whole thing and go do whatever you want to do. Now, that's the way I live life. Either God is real, and he, he does live in a place called heaven, and He sits on a throne, and He will judge the entire earth, and those who are following Jesus, who are found in Christ, that have been forgiven their sins, have been redeemed by God, and have... Hold on, we got a bona fide gospel nugget there. Yeah, it went by, whew, that was fast. You blinked and you would have missed it. To do His will on this earth. Either that is true, or we're wasting our money and our time. And there's no sense playing around with the thing. You know, I don't know about you, but if it's not real, I would much, I mean, look, you guys are nice people. Look, I mean, you, you are, you look nice. I mean, average people, but you're, you're nice average. You're above average. Like- now notice, I agree with him. Yeah, Christianity is true. And it does deserve our entire life. But he's talking about you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Baron Munchausen style. What Christ preaches is the work of God and the Holy Spirit in you. Slightly, like me. We're just slightly above average. And don't take this the wrong way, but if it's not real, I'd rather be at home in my skivvies with a cup of coffee and some Eggos planning out what i'm gonna do with my day yeah no 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 i did not need that mental picture rather than be here in 15 degree weather early in the morning to come play around you get what i'm saying why should we play around with this thing I mean, you've, you've got to give everything to God. You can't have your feet in both places. You can't say, yes, God is real, and then I'm living for myself. You can't do it. In fact, Jesus... But you do it every day, Bill, when you sin. Yeah, This is all just a misuse of the law. He doesn't understand the categories of law and gospel. purpose of the law is to show us our sin and our need for a Savior. The gospel answers that by showing us Christ and him crucified for all of our sins. And then the third use is only for Christians. The third use of the law shows us what a good work is so that we know how to serve our neighbor. Keep in mind, God does not need our good works. God doesn't need our whole self. What we need is the whole Jesus Christ. We need Jesus completely perfect for us. It's not that we give ourselves completely to Christ. It's that Christ gave himself completely for us. Us, that's the biblical gospel. Jesus talks about this in Matthew when he talks about money. And, you know, sometimes we can be all for God, but all for our money. It can be ours, not his. If God has everything, that means he has everything. And so look, look what Christ says here. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one, hate, either he will hate 
the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. Watch this. You cannot. Circle the word cannot. You cannot serve both God and money. He doesn't say it wouldn't be good for you to serve both God and money. He doesn't say you might can serve both God and money. He doesn't say uh, you can serve both God and money. He says you cannot do this. It doesn't work. You cannot serve two. You're either going to be one or the other or despise one, hate the other, whatever. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't say I'm going to live for God plus my number one goal is in life is to get rich and spend it all on myself. Can't do that. And there are a lot of other things besides money that can push God out. So I don't want to seem like I'm, I'm like, there he is, busting on the money thing again. I just know this. I know this about money. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And, and the last thing to go is the wallet. It's the last thing. Everybody, everybody hold your wallet up right quick. Hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up. Hold it up. Wave it at me. Wave it at me. Come on. Come on. Do it to me. Come on. Come on. Hurry up, people. I ain't got all day. Come on. This is my show to do it. Now, take it and give it to the person in front of you or behind you. Come on. Come on. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Here you go, Charles. You have, give me yours. You don't have a wallet? Give me that whole purse. I don't want a wallet. Give me the whole thing. There you go. Now hold it up. Now pull all the money out. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Feels kind of weird, doesn't it? I like yours, actually. It's a lot thicker than mine. Which tells me there is a lot of cash in here, a lot of plastic, or a lot of papers. Not sure. Receipts. Everybody get your wallet back. Come on. We just went through a momentary lapse of, you know, consciousness right there, didn't we? It feels weird, man. Give my wallet back. Boy, don't be touching my money, fool! Where your heart is, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And I know that. I understand that. And I understand that if you hold on to that, then you haven't given everything to God. And I watch those things. But there are a lot of other things besides money that can push God out. That can take first place. Work can take first place in your life. TV can take first place in your life. Especially if you've got one of those brand new plasma LED things, you know. Family can take the place of God can push him out. Hobbies can push God out. School can push God out. I mean, the desire for education, the desire to be something, to go somewhere, to do something, to have another certificate to put on your wall. Those things can crowd God out. And the question is, what's going to be number one in your life? What's going to be number one in you? And the truth is, there's nothing wrong with these things. They're all good things. And God blesses them. In fact, He approves of them. He just says that, that they better not be number one in your life. And anytime something besides God becomes number one in your life, it's called an idol. And Now, he's correctly identified the sin of idolatry. I guess even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. But here's the deal. Where is the gospel? Okay, because he is guilty of idolatry as well as everybody in the audience and everybody listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're all guilty of the sin of idolatry. So what's the solution? Just make sure that we put God first 
I don't think so. We have to deal with the thorny issue about the fact that we've committed a sin against a holy and just God. How is that going to be resolved? Who's going to pay the debt that I've incurred as a result of sinning against God and earning his wrath and punishment for committing the sin of idolatry? And that's, uh, and that's what God says. You cannot have idols. We call, I call them evil desires. Look at your neighbor and say, got any evil desires? Evil desires? Evil desires. It's because here's the deal. My, my desire to, is that God would be first. He is my highest desire. He's my greatest desire. And any desire that tries to, that they're all good, but any desire that tries to set itself up above God, that's evil. That's when it becomes evil. And here's an example of this. Jesus, Jesus is, he's out doing his thing, man, preaching to people. And this guy comes up to him and he says, you're awesome, man. I believe you're the son of God. And Jesus looks at him and he goes, follow me. And the guy goes, but Lord, first permit me first, you know, but Lord, permit me first to go and do other things. That's two words that don't go together in a sentence, right? We know what that's like, 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 um, hot dog. It's kind of weird. Hot dog is food. It's kind of weird. Um, chicken nuggets. Don't know what part of the chicken, the nugget is, but I got an idea. Uh, This is ridiculous. Microsoft works. You can't have Lord and me first. He either is Lord or you are. You know what I'm saying? The little Lord Farquhar's walking around here. Or God. That's the way it is. So let me ask you, where are you saying me first in your life? Okay, wait a second. Listen, dude, um... I don't think that really even matters at this point. You've correctly identified that we're all idolaters. And you included, by the way, because I don't believe for a second that you're not, you're not guilty of this. Again, how are we going to deal with that thorny issue that we've all committed this sin of idolatry, broken the first commandment? And what kind of excuses do you give God? You know, in the Bible, there's a story. Jesus tells a story when he's talking about this very principle. He's telling them the story about these guys. He said there was this king and he had this huge banquet plan, a king, and he invited people to come. It was like, let me put it in today's terms, because last night I watched the ball game, the Dallas slaughter of Philadelphia. I watched the ball game and every now and then Dallas has scored a touchdown and they go up to the owner's box and there's Jerry, uh, uh, Jerry Jones with George Bush. And I was like, dude, that's like two seriously high-powered individuals in one spot. You know what I mean? And, and so it'd be like Jerry Jones calling you up. And I don't care if you hate the Cowboys or love the Cowboys. If Jerry Jones called you up and said, hey, man, I just put together a virtual feast up here in my owner's box, and I'm inviting you to come join me at the game. Would you go? Yes. 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 Well, that's kind of the same content here and so this king invites these these guys to come and 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 this is what they said 
In Luke 14, it says they all began to make excuses. And I can see someone making these excuses to Jerry Jones. You know, like the first one. The first one says, hey, Jerry, man, I'd love to come see the game, the Cowboys, but I just bought a field, and I got to go check it out. I'll see if there's any grass growing in it, sucker. Or the second one, please excuse me, Jerry. Can't come to your game. I just bought five yoke of oxen. And I got to try them suckers out. The third one said, please excuse me, Jerry. Can't come watch the Cowboys at your owner's box because I just got married. I'm going to let him spin this story out, and then we're going to go back and take a look at Luke chapter 14. I'm going to show you what he missed. There's all kinds of excuses that we give God. He's inviting you to participate in a life that could be lived by no other. That pales in comparison to anything else. And many times we use excuses why we can't do it. We have- uh, notice that he ran that entire parable through the law. Let's go back. Luke chapter 14, verse 15, we begin. When one of those who reclined at the table with Jesus heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once uh, gave a great banquet and invited many. And And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, Well, I I bought a field, and and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And then another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I have to go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I I cannot come. So the servant came and reported all these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, and the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet." I want to run this through the gospel, not the law. This passage does not say, give yourself completely to God or else. Notice the invitation went out to everybody. Some refused the invitation. It was all gift. It was a party being thrown by somebody else at somebody else's expense. This is a party being put on by God at God's expense. He's the one who's paid for the party, and he's invited everybody. And the first on the A list, they said, oh, no, I got other things I'd rather be doing. And so what does God do? He opens it up to everybody. The lame, the people out on the highway, the crippled, the poor. He wants everybody at the party. Run it through the gospel, and all of a sudden this passage comes to life. Run it through the law like this guy did. In missing the important punchline to this parable itself, and you turn Christianity into a workspace religion based upon your efforts, your giving, your doing, your this, your that, and you miss the whole point that the gospel is this blessed, free gift and invitation to the whole world. We have so many things in our mind that we must get done first before we do that. 
And here's a little secret. God says, if you put me first, I'll take care of everything else. Matthew 6, Jesus is preaching. And he- he's going to go to Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. Watch what he does here because he's going to miss it again. This guy does not, he, he seriously, he doesn't even know the first thing about the Christian faith. He thinks it's all about what you have to do. He doesn't understand the go- the gospel, and he doesn't understand sound biblical hermeneutics. Listen carefully. Here we go. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything you need will be added to you. The pro- You know what the biggest problem is? The things we need and the things we want. Yeah, we kind of can't keep those separated, can we? That's not the point of what Jesus was saying here. Again, context, context, context comes into play. Matthew uh, 6, we're going to start at verse 25. Therefore, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. This is partway through the sermon. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body and what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith! Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father, he knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness. Not your own righteousness, but the righteousness of God. Where is the righteousness of God to be found? In Jesus Christ. Because when you trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and you believe in him and what he has done for you, his perfect sinless righteousness is imputed to you as if you're the one who's lived it. It's not about you giving yourself fully to God. Christ has given himself fully for you. His righteousness. Seek first his righteousness. Notice Bill completely doesn't even understand it. He doesn't see it. He doesn't get it at all. And we we have so many things. Proverbs chapter 3 says this in verse 6, in everything you do, put God first and he will direct you and crown your efforts with success. Whatever you want to be successful in, put God first in it. If you want to have a successful marriage, how many of you want to have successful marriages? 
I do. If you want to have a successful marriage, you know what you do? You put God first in your marriage. Notice he's making this a quid pro quo. If you put God first in your marriage, you're going to have a, uh, a good marriage. Uh, that's not even promised. There's some people who will put God first and their spouses will leave them because Christ didn't come to divide, to unite houses. He, at, in a very real way, came that to bring, make it so the husband is against uh, wife, daughter against mother, father against son. Christ brings division in families, very much so. Nowhere does it promise that you're going to have a perfect house, a perfect family, if you put Christ first in it. Where does it say that? You twisted uh, you know, the, this proverb that you quoted. You don't love your wife more than you love your God. You don't love your husband more than you love God. Put God first, you'll have a successful marriage. If, if you, how many of you want to have successful families? I do. I want to have a successful family. Put God first in your family. If you want to have a successful career, successful finances, woo bring it on, God. Put God first in your finances. How <laughs> He's turning God into like the cosmic genie in the sky. If you do this, then you're going to get all these things. Wow. How do you do that? Give him the first 10%. Simple. Yeah, right. It's simple. Well, go ahead then. Do it. Give him everything. Go ahead. You try. You first. Put God first. You want to have, you want to have success? Put God first. What does God want? He wants everything. He wants your whole life. Now, some of you go, he wants my whole life? Dang. How do you do that, Bill? What is it going to take? Number two, what does it take? Listen, if you're going to give your whole life to God, it takes one thing. It takes discipline. Now, I know. Oh, man. Yep, it's all law. It takes discipline. It's all law. This is law. This is not gospel. It takes discipline. Again, Christ gave himself completely for you. Because you, in your lost, sinful condition, cannot give yourself completely to God. By nature, you can't. We all hate that word. It's like taking NyQuil. I hate medicine. You guys like medicine? I hate medicine, dude. Give me a pill. I cannot take, like, cough syrup. Oh, oh. Pepto Bismol? Oh my gosh. Oh, make me puke now. Oh my God. Oh, no way, dude. Yeah, that's right. You just heard him say, oh my God, during a sermon. Showing that he hasn't given himself completely to God, by the way, proves beyond a shadow of a doubt. I am not drinking that. Uh uh. It ain't happening. You know, and that's what discipline feels like, but it's important. When we hear that God wants our whole life is so big, we, we can't we can't figure out how we're going to do it. It's going to take discipline. And God tells us that discipline is the way to life. In Proverbs ten seventeen, it says, whoever practices... No, it doesn't say discipline is the way to life. Unless you can keep yourself sinless, it can't lead you to life. It can only lead you to despair. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. If you trust and believe in Christ, you have life. Otherwise, you have no life. 
discipline is on the way to life. Then the truth, the truth of the matter is you cannot be a disciple of Jesus without being disciplined. The words are the same. Get it? Disciple, discipline. Hello, people. You can't be a disciple. Disciple means learner. Good night. Without being disciplined, they just go together. And in 1 Timothy 4, 7, and, and the first part of it, it says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. I want you to circle the word discipline. I want you to circle it in this minute. Notice again, a verse ripped completely out of context. Message in this notes, and I want you to write out the definition of discipline right here I'm about to give you. What is discipline? It's delayed gratification. That's what it is. It's delayed gratification. It's, it's basically, it's doing the difficult now to enjoy the benefit later. It's doing the thing I don't want to do right now, or I don't feel like doing right now, to see the benefit that comes into life later. Now, how many of you are like me? You're in my club. I have a new club, by the way. You're in my new club. You kind of you lost your diet type self at Thanksgiving and you decided I'll just wait till the holidays are over and I'll start all over again. Anybody out there? Hold your hand up. Hold them up. Don't drop them. Hold them up. You are now in the fat boy Billy May Club. (laughs) And uh, listen, listen to me. There is hope. But you got to stay away from cookies. Because cookies kill Some of you go, no, Bill, crack kills. No, it doesn't. Crack makes you skinny. Cookies kill. (laughs) They both ruin your teeth, but one makes you fat, the other makes you skinny and broke. You don't know how many times I've actually entertained the thought of crack. Let's look at my wife. I'll just do it for a few months, honey. I'll shed 60 pounds and you can get me help. It's cheaper than Jenny Craig. (laughs) Here's a different word for discipline because I know we all hate it. Habit. Habit. And what we're talking about is developing spiritual habits. Yeah, it's all law. This is just bad. It just, there is no gospel. There was a nugget of it that went through, but he doesn't know how to connect any gospel dots whatsoever. And it's like this. If you want to be, how many of you would like to be known as an honest person? Well, if you, if you want to be known as an honest person, you have to habitually tell the what? The truth. Exactly. If you, if you want to be an honest person, you have to habitually Tell the truth. You have to habitually be honest, and and, and we have to we have to 
We, ha- we want to have a close relationship. We have to have habitually spend time together with someone. I mean, if I want a close relationship with my wife, I, I-, I got to see her a little bit. I've got to spend time with her. I've got to habitually make time for my wife. It's the same thing with God. If you want to be close to God, you have to make a habit of being with Him. And it's hard. Sometimes you don't feel like it. Sometimes you don't want to. But listen to me. Your character, listen. listen. Man, pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Man, this is just a complete formula for creating atheists or people who've completely despair. Because everybody knows that they don't do this perfectly and that they are guilty of not doing this. Do you have any hope to offer them whatsoever, Bill? Listen, your character is what you habitually do. Your habits are the sum total of your character. And if you want to be close to God, you've got to spend time with Him. First Timothy 4.7, it says, Spend your time and energy in the exercise of keeping spiritually fit. Now, I'm going to give you two spiritual disciplines. You're going to have to write these down in your notes. The first spiritual discipline is the discipline of letting things go. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Let us strip off every weight. I want you to circle that. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin, circle that, that so easily hinders our progress. There are two things that hold you back spiritually. Sin and weights. And these things can hold your spiritual progress back. Now, we understand what sins are. Sins are when I don't do what God asked me to do. That's what sins are. But what are weights? You see, weights can be good things, but they can still slow you down. An example. Oh, man. This is just pathetic. Apparently he hasn't been to seminary, doesn't know his biblical languages, doesn't know the first thing about sound biblical hermeneutics. He's just winging it, and uh, boy, with quite a bit of zeal, too. This would be activity. If you're just always busy, always running and doing things and this and that, and Johnny's got this and Sadie's got that, and we just all going, 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 going. And he's like, when do we ever stop? We don't. We just, you know. That can be a weight. It can keep you from being close to God. Relationships can be a weight. Did you have, you know. You ever had any relationships with people just just took you away from where you wanted to be? Relationships can be a weight. They can slow you down. Sermons apparently could be a weight. Fears can be weights. Always being afraid of what might happen or what could happen. They can be a weight that can keep you from getting close to God. And you know, the truth is, in life, some things aren't necessarily wrong. They just aren't necessary. They're not wrong. They just aren't necessary. And so we've got to determine, we've got to figure out what in our life can we let go of that's holding us back from being close to God. Another, I can think of one thing really quick. This church, this sermon, this is the thing that's keeping me far from God very true because it's not showing me Christ and him crucified for me. It's telling me the things I have to do. This is all law, not gospel. So this sermon is the very thing that's keeping me far from God. Another spiritual discipline, write this down, is the discipline of putting first things first. The discipline of putting first things first. 
Why do I feel like this guy is completely making up his own spiritual disciplines? <laughs> I don't think you'll find this in Foster or Willard or any of the monastic monks. He's just making up his own stuff. In Luke chapter 10, verse 40 through 42, there's a there's a, an interchange here that happens between Martha, Mary, and Jesus. And, and Jesus comes over to their house, and Martha is busy, and she's trying to get things ready, and she's cooking everything, and, you know, she's got the DiGiorno in the oven and all this stuff's going on, and the kids are just crazy. And she goes, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. How many times have you found your life with God distracted by the things around you that you're doing? All the tasks in life. And she gets pissed, man. She goes, Lord, do you not care that my... He did not just do that. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) I mean, could you imagine someone talking to God that way? Do you not care? I can hear her now. Do you not care? If I was Jesus, I'd look at her and go, Martha, if someone slaps you on your back, your face is going to freeze that way. Do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself while you and her are playing the Wii? I'm in here working on my butt off. Do you not care? And, And this is what Jesus does. He goes, Martha. Martha, two, he calls her by name twice. This is important. He said, Hey girl, listen. He said, You're, you're worried and distracted by many what? Things. Circle that word, things. Things, listen, things are never as important as Jesus. Things are just things. George Carlin. Now, I agree with him. Nothing is more important than Jesus, but notice he's not preaching Jesus. He's preaching you and the things you have to do. In other words, the way he's painted Jesus, Jesus is basically sitting up in heaven with his arms folded going, I hope this guy gets it right. He better put me first. I'm sick and tired of him putting those other things first because I tell you what, I'm sending that guy to hell if he doesn't get his priorities straight. The famous philosopher talks about things like stuff, right? We all got stuff, and we get more stuff. We run out of room, and we build a garage to put our stuff in. And then somebody steals our stuff, and we go out and buy more stuff, right? It's just stuff. He says, you're worried and distracted about things, but there is need of only one thing, and Mary has chosen the better part of it. The first thing we need to recognize is that it is a choice to focus on Jesus. You can choose to do good things in life or... Man, this is just all law. Or the better things in life. And, and and we all have to do, we all have more to do than we could possibly ever get done. And some of those things are extremely important things. But if you don't clarify what the most important things are, those things that are going to last, then you might make the right, you, you, you might not be able to make the right choice of what to do. You have to clarify what's the most important thing. You know, Bill, again, here's the problem. You're a complete hypocrite because you do not keep God's law perfectly, yet you're telling all these people to keep God's law. Unbelievable. And you're not giving him Christ and him crucified for their sins. <sighs> he's talking as if he's the one keeping the law. And listen to me. I know we're busy. 
And I know you got lots to do. But if you, if you get up every morning and you don't take a little moment of time and spend with God, then you have missed it. You've missed it. You've missed an opportunity to say to Him, Lord, I know that You're there and I love You and I dedicate my life to You every day, all over again today. And I But Christ dedicated His life for me every day. Because I don't dedicate my life to Him. I am not saying that sin is okay. What I'm saying is that law-keeping doesn't save you. Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection for your sins is what saves you. And it's through that gospel that God works sanctification and brings good works in our life. The reason I do good works is because of my great God and Savior and what he has done for me in saving a wretch, a complete, washed-out, broken wretched sinner like myself. I don't have to chase after my tail. I can't help but do good works because it is Christ who works them in me. I ask you to use me in all the things I'm doing. Use me to do your will. It's that simple. You can do it as long or as short as you want, but just do it. Look at your neighbor and say, just do it. Just be with God. Just be with God. You were made by God and you were made for God. And how, you know, how do I, how do I do that? The, how do I, how do I put first things first? The best use of your life is to invest it in something that's going to outlast it. So go through your list of to-do items and ask, how much is going to, how much is what I'm doing going to matter 10 years from now? How about how much is what I'm going to what I'm doing here going to matter in eternity? And and if you do that, then what what will happen is you make your list and you clarify it. Then God will give you the willpower to do His will. In, in, in Philippians chapter two, verse. Where does it say that in the Bible? Man, this guy just makes stuff up. This is a completely concocted theology. Verse 13, it says this. It says, God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his own purposes. What translation is that? Hang on a second here. I, I've got to back up the tape. And, and if you do that, then what, what will happen is you make your list and you clarify it. Then God will give you the willpower to do his will. In, in, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it says this. It says, God is always at work in you to make you willing and able to obey his own purposes. That is not what Philippians 2.13 says. <sighs> context, 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 and a good translation helps out here. All right, let's do not, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3 from the English sanctified version I read. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but also more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who works in you to will and to work his good pleasure. Well, this guy, what this guy just told you, it ain't even in the text. And what he's, he's reading from a bad translation, which isn't even a translation at all. It doesn't say that if you give, you make your priorities straight, then God's going to give you the, uh, the uh, willingness to do it. That's not what this text says. So it's not about, you know, now I, instead of being busy on my own stuff, now I just get busy on God's stuff. It's not like that. It's like this. It's like instead of being so consumed with my own stuff, I focus my eyes on Jesus and I yield myself to him. And then his power working in me will produce his will in the earth. I don't have to do a thing except be focused on him and yield to him. And this may be the most important time management tip you ever get. Because some of you go, Bill, you just don't understand. You just don't know what it's like. I got five kids. They run me crazy. I got to get these kids. I got to get them before 30 in the morning. I got to get the kid on the morning. No, that was not tongues. That was jibber jabber. <laughs> this may be the most important time management tip you ever had. Proverbs 10, 27. Reverence for the Lord adds hours to each day. Just putting him first. Move over, Franklin Covey. We've got a, a brand new time management system. It's the Billy May system. First, and thinking of him will add to your day. And it's a decision. It's what am I going to let go of and what am I going to put first? And then I'm going to trust God for the rest of it. It's going to take discipline to see God's purpose. See, God wants everything and it's going to take discipline. And we already know that's tough. I mean, that's a big haul, isn't it? God wants everything. I got to give him everything and it's going to take discipline. Right now we're like, dang, I'm not sure if you sold me on this one, boy. You would have done better if you told me about all the benefits. Because the truth is there are a lot of benefits for serving God. There are a lot of things that can happen in your life just by disciplining your If you expect there to be benefits from God by just raw keeping of his law, then you will not see any benefits until you can keep it perfectly. The law does not give any room for fudging. Your life and serving God with your whole heart. But the truth is, those disciplines don't matter a thing. Why should I do it? Two words, the cross. 
That's why I should do it. Whoa, we've got got some gospel here. (laughs) Oh, wow, I didn't even think he had it in him. Holy cow, what am I going to do with that? All right, let's take... Okay, so apparently why all we need... The reason why we need to do all this is the cross. Oh, this is still not Christian sanctification, but let's see what he has to say. You were without, without, without guidance. You were lost in your own sinfulness. Damned to hell. Jesus' life. Jesus gave his life completely for you. And he wants your life completely in return. Nope, that doesn't count as a gospel nugget. That counts as a gospel twist. Wow. He gave his life completely for you, and now he expects your life, all of your life completely in return. And I'm just going to freak out. Without the cross, we would be hopeless. We would be damned without a future. And because of what Jesus has done on the cross, I have freedom. I have hope. I have security. I have an eternal destiny because of Jesus. Eternal destiny. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 15, it says, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. And you know, we're hearing something that sounds gospel-y, but it's artificial gospel flavor at this point. And was raised again. He died for all. That those who live should no longer live for themselves. In Ephesians 1.7. See most of us the reason why we, we're, we're, we're a little bit. We're a little bit shy. Or we're a little bit reserved to give everything to God. Is because we think we're failures. I mean, we look at other people and we say, they're doing so much better at this whole Christian thing than I am. They're following Jesus. They look, they pray good. They serve good. I'm just a loser. I mean, you may not admit it because no one wants to admit that they're a loser. But in your mind, you tell yourself over and over again about how disqualified you are and how you don't deserve it and how you, how you should work harder. To earn acceptance by God. How you should live better in order for God to love you. And that is so much of a lie. Isn't that what you've been preaching on for the last 35 minutes? In Ephesians, Paul says this. He says, through the blood of his son, we are set free from our sins. God forgives our failures because of his overflowing kindness. This is real gospel here, okay? Why should I do it? Because of the cross. 
What should our response be? In light of what Jesus has done for us, how should we respond? In Romans 12, Paul writes this. He says, brothers and sisters, in view of all we have just shared about God's compassion, I encourage you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice dedicated to God and pleasing to Him. And I want you to understand something. It cost Jesus to die for you, and it's going to cost you to live for Him. You cannot be... He doesn't really understand the gospel. That's the only thing I can say at this point. He doesn't really get it. Because he keeps, basically, the cross is, the reason why you have to give your life to God is because Jesus gave his life for you. End of story. (sighs) Be a part-time follower of Christ. And this year at BCC, we're going to make an impact on our city. We're going to see hundreds and hundreds of people come in the doors for the first time and pick up these red bags and receive Jesus. And and we're going to work together to make that happen. We are going to have an impact. But listen, the only way it's going to happen is when us as a church decide that we want more of God than what we have now and we take a step toward Him and leave our life behind. That's the only way that people are going to come and be a part of this church. It isn't because of advertising schemes. It isn't because of new meeting places. It isn't because of slick programs. It's because the the Spirit of God is... Well, it's not because of great preaching either. ...radiating in our hearts, and it's drawing people like a magnet to come be with Jesus. And when they come looking for hope, when they come looking for eternal life, when they come looking for a future, they don't see it or find it in a message. They see it evident in people, and they know it's real. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they won't hear the gospel for real in a message there, that's for sure. That's the only way, folks, that we're going to make an impact in this city. You're going to have to step closer to God. And leave more of yourself behind. And here's a question I want to ask you. And this is serious. And I mean this with all my heart. Is anyone going to be in heaven because of you? Is any- No. There is nobody going to be in heaven because of me. You're sitting there going, what? No, think about it for a second. I'm just a beggar. Telling the other beggars where the food is. If there's anybody in heaven... It's because of Christ, not me. One plants, another waters. It's God who brings the growth. God who brings the increase. The only people that are going to be in heaven are there because of Christ. I preach the gospel not because I have to or because any I'm compelled to because of the law. I do it because I'm a sinner and a beggar. And I know where the meal is. And I know where salvation is. It's in Christ. I know he's the one forgiving and pardoning sins. On the great day in which we receive our crowns in heaven, the scriptures that I read say that we will take our crowns and cast them before the king. I'm not earning crowns. I'm not interested in a crown. Christ is the one who gets all the glory. All of it. Not me, not you, not no one else, Christ. And I will not, even for a second, try to take the glory that Christ gets in this.
I'm just a beggar. anyone going to be in heaven because of your life? Is anyone going to be in heaven because you've decided to focus on Jesus and you've decided to lay your life down? In 2 Corinthians 6, 1 in the message version, it says this, Paul writes, we beg you, please don't squander one bit of this marvelous life God has given us. The only things in this life that will last are those things done for Christ. And you know what the truth is? I'm tired of hearing about it happen in other places. And I'm tired of reading about it in the Bible and asking, Lord, when is the day that it will happen here? I'm tired of that. I want to see it here. I want to see marriages restored. I want to see the lost come and give their heart to Jesus. I want to see people's lives be healed of their disease and their sicknesses. I want to see that happen in this day. And Habakkuk said this in chapter 3 verse 2. He says, Lord, I have heard the news about you. I am amazed at what you've done. Lord, do great things once again in our time. Make those things happen again in our own days. And I believe that that can happen at our church. I believe that we can see it. That we can see a new time when people in the city come and find Jesus. Those who would never step foot in a church will come and find a Savior. And I believe it's going to start as we Step closer to Christ. No, it will happen when you preach Christ and Him crucified, when all of your sermons are about Him and what He's done, not the things that we supposedly have to do. Good night. Have you ever wanted to be part of a miracle? Do you want your life to matter and make a difference? And give yourself fully to Christ. Discipline yourself. Good luck. Yeah, again, let me know how that goes for you. Keep first things first and invite others to join you on your journey towards Christ and you will see God do amazing things. Let's pray. Oh, man, what a train wreck. What a train wreck. Good night. That was awful. Folks, listen. Let's begin at the beginning. You did hear that you're a sinner, and you did hear that Christ died for your sin. Let me kind of back this up and put some things in order here, okay? You are a sinner. You do not keep God's law. You are guilty of idolatry, of murder, adultery, stealing, coveting, not taking, uh, not, keep, not, not keeping the Sabbath day holy, of not honoring your father and mother. I mean, the list goes on and on of the things that you are guilty of before God, and that's just today. Because as James says, when you break one of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking all of them. The purpose of the law is to show you your sin. And when you let the law do that, it will destroy you. And that's what it's supposed to do. It will undo you, because that's what it's supposed to do. It's to leave you naked and powerless before a holy and just God, completely a beggar with nothing to offer him, not even yourself, because what would he want with a wretched sinner like you? Now comes Christ. God's law demands that we keep it perfectly, and we don't. Christ comes. He is God in human flesh, come to rescue us, to redeem us, to save us. And he lives the law perfectly in your place. And he dies on the cross in your place. 
And he takes your sin and he propitiates God's wrath and he atones for your sin through his blood shed on the cross for you. And we know it's true because he was raised again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, showing that his sacrifice was accepted by God, the Father, and that he has power over sin, death, and the devil, and that he has conquered all. And he calls us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, calls you to repent of your sinful rebellion, of your lying, of your stealing, of your murdering, of your coveting, of your adulteries, of all of the things that you have done even today against him. And the good news is not that you have to give your life fully to God, but that Christ gave his life fully for you. Repent, therefore, of your sin and your self-righteousness and trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. That being accomplished by God the Holy Spirit through the preaching of this gospel, then God will work in you to sanctify you, mold you into his image, and produce good works as fruit in your life. Because that's the same as basically what does a flame do by nature? It produces heat. What do Christians do by nature? They do good works. God will do these good works in you. He will produce these fruits in you. He will discipline you. But you are set free from sin, death, and the devil. You are set free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. You no longer have to do its bidding. You belong to another because you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. How could you not then, based upon the fact that he has raised you from the dead, he's buried you with Christ, raised you with Christ, clothed you in Christ's righteousness, regenerated you, and given you life? Here and into eternal into eternity. Eternal life begins now. Eternity has begun today. Trust in him. And he will produce these good works in you. And they will not be works that are done at the end of a whip or at the end of a gun or at the end of a threat. But works done in faith, in love and trust in God. Not for you, but for your neighbor. That's what Christian sanctification is. You do what you do because you are what you are. When you were born, you were born in rebellion against God, dead in trespasses and sins. And when the gospel came, God raised you from the dead in Christ. And you are a new creation in him. And that new creation does good works because that's what that new creation does automatically. And think of Jesus telling the sheep on the day of judgment, blessed are you because when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was naked, you clothed me. And the sheep, what do they say? When did we do that? Huh? Are you serious? Sheep don't keep track of their good works. That'd be silly. That'd be like orange trees keeping track of their how many oranges they produce. They just produce them. Who cares? 
the oranges aren't for the orange tree's benefit anyway. They're for the benefit of those who have the, who the orange tree gives its fruit to for nourishment and food. Same with your good works. They're not even for you. They're for your neighbor. Don't even keep, try to keep track of them. Who cares? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance by abiding in Christ. You are the vine. He's the vine. You are the branches. That's how this all works. This sermon, on the other hand, yeah, don't know what that was. Vaguely biblical, artificial gospel, gospel flavor. Verses taken from context. Pep talk, law talk. Not Christian sanctification that doesn't produce Christian good works. We pray for Pastor Bill May. Folks, we're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And if you are growing in your understanding of Scripture, the gospel, Christian sanctification, a law, gospel, good Christ-centered theology, <laughs> counter-apologetics against uh, seeker-driven uh, errors and emergent heresies, uh, then join us and financially support what we're doing. You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and clicking on our Join Our Crew button. That's right. Join our crew. It's a mere $6.95 a month to join our crew. And once we get to a 1,000 listeners who've joined the crew, then we uh, have basically made sure that we can pay all of our bills on a monthly basis. And why is that important? Because now it's February, and, well... We're all on our own now. We do not have the aid of a generous supporter that we've had in the past, and therefore we've got to raise all of our money in order to pay our bills so that we can continue to bring this radio program to you as well as to the world. So if you haven't joined, this is a good time to do so. Fightingforthefaith.com, click on Join Our Crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, Zip code 46038. All right, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. You can email me your feedback. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.